Hey guys, uh, welcome to Dubai Lessons. So tonight I'm sitting with my friend Mark in a lovely Costa shop here in the DIFC. Uh, and then um, we're going to be talking about Africa again. We're going to be talking about technology uh, in Africa and then how it is going to evolve. But first of all, let's uh, uh, talk about Mark, who is our guest today and has kindly accepted to share his experiences with us. So Mark uh, operates as a financial consultant across uh, many countries, I suppose, from South Africa to the UK, uh, north to south and then south to north. He's been um, in finance uh, for over than 15 years. He has traded uh, rates. He knows uh, quite well how the FX market works and then how the optionalities in the FX market uh, work. And then he also knows quite a bit about the technology that powers all these markets. So, Mark, warm welcome to you. Can you tell us a couple of words about yourself? Firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to speak on your podcast bros i'm a long-time listener first-time guest <laughs> um, so as thank you for the kind introduction uh, as a financial consultant what i do is help people apply the principles of financial services to their businesses using technology hoping to grow and i do that mainly in sub-saharan africa uh, but also with, with links into the US and the UK. Um, I go back uh, to 2005. I started my career pre-crisis with a very, very large bank that, that had ambitions to take over the world. <laughs> I, was, I had a first front row seat to see the mortgage crisis unfold um, in 2006 and seven. I saw the credit crunch up close and personal in this September of 2007. I saw Lehman's go under. Um, I was at the coalface of that crisis and it actually pushed me to go to Africa where I've been having adventures ever since. Oh, um, hang on, when you were saying about the financial crisis, I think that many people and then quite a few of our listeners, they actually do not understand what a real financial crisis is. So can you tell us a bit more about how your seat looked like and then how your trading floor looked like when the mortgage crisis happened and then even perhaps what are your memories from uh, Lehman uh, going under? Yeah, sure. Um, that crisis actually started in 2005. A lot of banks were writing really? more, yeah, huge amounts of lending was going through and the, the assessment of risk was, let's just say, uh, a little bit laissez-faire, you know, <laughs> the standards of underwriting were not the highest and I started my career in, a, in this large bank in a little corner of real estate finance, so I saw some interesting business getting done. Um, I remember very clearly a man with a, not even a high school education uh, get a hundred million pound ticket on a development that um, we had only seen pictures of. We'd had actually never done a site visit. So that's where Strong. it began, you know, um, with poor lending. That's, that's really the, the, the crux of it. So it happened poor lending in the UK, in Europe, also in the US, right? Now, the vivid memories of the trading floor I have um, start when Northern Rock was bidding 15% for overnight cash. Do you remember Northern Rock? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. This, is, this is what became Virgin Money at some exactly. point. So the old 15% Northern Rock of an... had this wonderful business model. 
I'll give Boris a mortgage for right. 10 years right. and I will go and borrow this money on the money markets overnight to a week to at much lower rates. I'll lend Boris five years at um, 7%, 7% at the time, 8% even, uh, and I'll go and borrow it from the money markets at 4%. Okay, nicely spread, beautiful. Exactly. However, they didn't realize that it couldn't go on forever. Because at some stage, some people would like to take their money elsewhere. Which makes sense. Yeah. So they were bidding for money at 15% in the money markets. I used to sit near the cash desk. Okay. Um, at a very large brokerage firm in London. Yeah. In the city. Um, and I would just see the cash desk quiet, quiet, quiet the whole morning. Then there'll be a flurry of activity, then silence for the rest of the day. And I, I never understood how did they make a living working for only about an hour a day. Um, and the truth is... When finally someone was very desperate, they either had too much cash, they would then give someone a little bit at 9%, 10%. The rates had really shot up by then. And that's what formed the genesis of the credit crunch. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's the inability to finance your long-term liabilities with short-term liabilities. That was the... But, the, but the, I mean, this is the basic, this, these are the basics of finance. You know, you can't... This is essentially saying, you know what, I can actually go and buy a house on my credit card. I mean, it's or I'm going to keep changing principle. my I'm going to keep changing my credit card and I'm going to pay for my mortgage payments and then I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to pay my monthly installment and I'm going to have my, you know, I'm going to manage to build my equity and then that's fine when the markets are going up. But when something from significant magnitude happens, I guess this is not the case anymore, right? Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. If it's business as usual, everyone's okay. Now, what happened to end it to the end of this business as usual situation? Um, effectively, people wanted their money back. And what started to happen is people wanted their money back from the US. Right. So in the US, money disappeared. So suddenly, the banks in the US stopped lending money abroad. And, and, and this meant in a period of about four weeks, Okay. Money just disappeared from all markets. Because I now thought to myself, hang on, I can't lend Boris any money because I don't know who he is. Absolutely. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to, to, to lend me if you don't know whether I what my credit risk is, essentially. This is what you're describing, right? Exactly. And that, therein lies the crux. So, first and foremost, we saw Bear Stearns fold over. Oh, yeah, that was painful, I guess, to many. Uh, and then in September of 2008, I remember this very vividly. On the Friday afternoon, the trader at Lehman's who I used to speak to came over the line and we used to have open voice. That's how old I am. We traded by voice back in those days. Okay, um, really? So there was no electronic trading? No, no it was by voice. Forwards were concluded by voice. Forwards? Yep. So everyone like, had an, an Excel spreadsheet or how did you calculate the forwards? I'm sorry to, to ask about these details, but it's kind no, of it's, interesting. It's, it's fine. So we would get prices as brokers. We would call all the banks and we had direct lines. So I'll click into a line and say, where are you one month uh, euro dollar? Where are you one month half? Where are you one month check? And they'll come back with some prices and then I'll close the price to get the best bid and ask. And then I'll just go and distribute that price around. Verbally, I'll be like, One's I'm 14 at 20, two's I'm uh, 16 at 32, right? So he clicks into and I said, Lehman's a good credit. Anyone who turns me down and doesn't want to do business with me, tell me who it is. <laughs> this is 11 in the morning. And it was an indication of things to come. Because everyone turned Lehman's down by midday. 
by midday it was done basically. But within the space when everyone clicked and said, can't see limits. Wow. And at the time, how big was Lehman's? Because many people don't realize what, what this was. So at the time, the big US investment banks were actually two. Number one, in, in, in our FX markets, number one was JP Morgan Chase. Number two was Lehman's. And Lehman's okay. were very, very large in FX. And they took a lot of risk. Clearly they did, yeah. <laughs> so I then get a call Monday morning at 2.30 a.m. Uh, I had to be at the office within an hour. Because, Beautiful. Yeah, interesting times because all the banks had realized they had never really thought what would happen if one of them goes bust because I swap money with you, you swap money with me, I swap money with you, you swap money with me. We're so intermingled, I don't know what my risk is just to you. Wow. Right? Wow. And again, it goes back to this risk management. So at about five in the morning, all the banks, all the traders were in who were trading forwards and they were trying to extricate themselves from the big So basically risk. exit and then close their positions, right? Exactly. But they had to find other people with opposing positions, not Lehman's. <laughs> there were no people like that, I imagine. <laughs> it was tough. You'd find people, but you'd find people only at a price. And this is what I learned that day. There is always liquidity at a price. Key takeaway, underlining, there is always liquidity at a price. And I think that this is something that, I get, that can go probably a little wider. I think that it's the same for businesses, it's the same for, it's the same for anyone really. Of course, with any commodity, what do we mean by there's always liquidity at a price? Let's say you have a house, you can't sell it. It's on the market six months, nine months, a year. If you keep discounting it, you will find a buyer. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's for sure. And that's what happened in these markets. Uh, those who are desperate for dollars were happy to pay 10% to borrow dollars overnight. Fair enough. Those Fair enough. who were very, very concerned about uh, their cash positions were happy to sell bonds at 40 cents or even 30 cents on the dollar. Well, that's like 60-70% below par. Yeah. That's outstanding. So those people who had liquidity at the time did very well, right? I could possibly imagine, yeah. Yeah. So this taught me the second lesson. Stay liquid. Everyone, long cash, whoever is investing into something, always make sure that you have a cash position. Exactly. And so I saw this crisis up front. Um, and then 2009 and 10 were the years of consolidation right. and financial markets have never been the same since. We saw concerted efforts from central banks to make money free, they stepped in to guarantee a lot of the bank's debt, they bought huge amounts of mortgages which is effectively saying you've made a bet on Boris to pay his mortgage back, it doesn't matter if it goes wrong, I will take that and give you the money that you have given Boris for his house. Um, and really, finance is still in this very, very long tail of that crisis, right? Interest rates are near zero in most of the world, negative in some, very negative in others. Yeah, one question that I want to ask you, right? So you're talking about interest rates and then the, you're talking about the fact that interest rates right now are very low because of the fact that uh, central banks and then the lenders of last resort they're happy to step in 
but has anyone told how solvent are central banks? Then you raise a fantastic point. I was very naive when the crisis was unfolding. I turned around, I was working for a large American bank at the time, and I turned around right. and said, hang on, we're going to issue more debt to take care of a debt problem. How can debt fix debt? And I was very naive, I didn't understand. But you raise a good point. What we've done is, is, is engaged in one enormous um, confidence game. Absolutely. Purely by me believing in you, uh, the expectation is anchored that you will fulfill your obligations. Um, and to a certain extent, it's true. If a central bank needs to print money, they can print money. Yeah, but, but how about inflation? That's a good point. Now you wonder, we have printed all this money with what is called quantitative easing. And don't Billions be fooled. of dollars. Don't be fooled by that term. It is printing money um, in an electronic sense. Because no cash gets printed. It just gets credited to the financial system, which is the reason why you've got asset bubbles appearing here and there. Exactly. So how is it that there's no inflation? What has happened is we are now in a period of what it, I will refer to as secular decline. The okay. entire makeup of value, currency and money have changed. Because remember, currency, money and value are three very different things. Right. Right. So I, I do understand the difference between these three things. But for the sake of some of our listeners, do you mind explaining the difference? Because I think this is mega useful. Of course. Um, and it's a very difficult concept to grasp but if I start with the little premise that if I want to buy a house I go to a bank for a mortgage and they will credit the seller of the house and I'll get the house and then I owe the bank that money that money doesn't really exist the bank hasn't got the depositors let's say I get a $300,000 mortgage the bank hasn't got $300,000 of deposits to turn into a mortgage they have approximately $30,000, sometimes a lot less. And the rest is made purely by the fractional reserve banking system, meaning that they can just enter some numbers on a ledger that is accepted at the central bank because they have created an asset on their books of 300000 so they can create a liability of 300000 Right Now that liability is actually 30000 Right? Yeah. The actual asset is our debt, our mortgage at 300000 So that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? That doesn't really balance. Where's the 270000 to make the balance sheet balance? Absolutely. Well, the bank made it up. And that is the nature of modern money. Right? If you Absolutely. think about it, you get paid every month and you don't see a you don't check take, or no, cash. The thing is that you don't take the... the because people are so used to the system... I think this happens in the Western world, right? Because in many, uh, and then I think this will be the second part of our conversation when we're going to go to your uh, experiences in Africa and then dealing with central banks in, in, in across the continent, I guess, is that, you know, people in the Western world and then especially in the United States of America, uh, they're short-lived and they, they do not have the memory of a failing banking system. They do not remember what was in the 1930s. They, they do not even remember what was in the times of Nixon when uh, 
the whole and loans. Uh, when, when, when the whole Bretton Woods agreement were, were revised, they do not know what it was in 1947 when there was no virtue, there was no cash because we were after the war, right? So they do not remember all these things, and everyone has got this blind confidence in the system. So I know that I have. Uh, my money in my bank account and if I need money I usually use a digital mean of payment i.e. a card, maybe a debit card, maybe a credit card Apple Pay now? Uh, Apple Pay, whatever it is uh, you, you don't actually take your assets out of the bank it stays somewhere in a ledger or in a virtual kind of hosting system if you will exactly. however I think people who have uh, lived in Eastern Europe where I am from where there were massive financial uh, where there was a massive financial crisis in one in 1994 and then another bigger one in 1997-1998. Um, so this is when you see banks disappearing. This is when you see insolvent banking institutions. This is when you see things like hyperinflation, where you today you have uh, uh, today you have I don't know uh, the amount of uh, um, you have some oranges that cost you. $10 and then tomorrow the same orange juice costs you $110 and then you don't know why which brings us to the um, second concept uh, so one is the concept of value and then uh, the, the other one is the, uh, is the is the concept of price I guess right for, 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 that, for that value so can you continue explaining on that sure so we dealt with money money doesn't really exist it's a concept right uh, it's numbers on a ledger then we have prices. Prices change. Where do prices come from? We, we have something that we call a price, which is actually a currency. Absolutely. Right? So a liter of orange juice, in currency terms, would be ten dollars, right? Absolutely. So currencies change in value. So it's not to say your money has changed in value, but your currency has changed in value sometimes. <laughs> and those of us who have lived in banana republics know that this can happen in brutal, brutal ways. Um, and so there you have the three strands. You have value, which is what we say something's worth. We have the means of transmission, which is money. That's why we call it monetary policy. And then we have currency. Currency which determines the number, the price, the rate. Right? So I, after these adventures in the city, I went, I went out to Africa to some... To some uh, don't say charity work. <laughs> no, <laughs> let, me, let me be very that's honest. That's such a cliche. Yeah, I, I didn't go to Africa to be the great savior or great hope. I went to continue my career and have some adventures. So I have lived in South Africa, in Kenya, in uh, Nigeria, in Uganda, and in Tanzania. And when I first moved over, my pound would buy 14 rands. Let's start with South Africa. One, right. My one pound would buy 14 rands. When I was leaving, my one pound was only worth, was now worth 70 pounds, meaning that I put pounds in at 14, yeah. I had to then go and buy pounds out at 70, which is a, a loss. Yeah. Right? The same thing happened in Uganda. My one, How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> my one pound used to buy 3,000 shillings. When right. I was leaving, my one pound cost me 5,000 shillings. Right? Now, that's such a difference, by the it's way. I don't, I do not under, I, I don't know for any of our listeners that are actually living in the in the Western Hemisphere or like in a in the US or, or Europe. I don't even think that you guys understand what means to, to, to what means. I don't know. That sixty percent. 
I think fluctuation in the value of a currency. So imagine that you're buying a liter of petrol for a dollar or for a pound or for a euro and then you wake up six months down the line and then the same liter of petrol costs you 160. This is how it would feel to your pocket. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. So a lot of these African countries rely a lot on the dollar. Primarily because they measure everything against the dollar. And what happens is when the currency loses value, people lose confidence. Absolutely. And they go to the bank, pull out their life savings, go to a uh, bureau de change and change their savings into dollars and hide those dollars under the mattress. <laughs> well, you were saying Literally. belong cash. This exactly. Is... That's it. Um, so people protect themselves from hyperinflation in these, in these countries by buying dollars. But all this does is force people away from the local currency, which means it creates a natural demand for dollars, and unnaturally, if you will, because they don't really need them. They're trying to protect their wealth and savings. So they're trying to protect um, their wealth, which is an interesting one. Recently, I was actually um, looking at the Fed website. So that Fed stands for the Federal Reserve Bank. So that's the Reserve Bank of the United States of America. And there was a study which was basically saying that the Fed has lost the worth of $4 trillion in cash of $100 bills. Because they, they were so many, there are so many countries around the world that where people are actually storing physical cash and then they have, because it's, there are so many banknotes, they're very difficult to trace. Um, they did some estimates that about 67% of that money is um, in Russia and then the former Soviet Union. There was a fair amount, I think about 20 something percent in um, actually Africa amongst the different African countries and then the, the remaining was in uh, where was in Asia so that's a, that's a very very interesting thing to have in mind the central bank that doesn't know where their means of exchange are actually uh, uh, sitting back to back to Africa and back to your experience uh, back to your experience sorry but I, I felt that this is kind of important that's an important point Boris hundred dollar bills or Benjamins as they're known <laughs> and by the way, uh, Benjamin Franklin is the only person to be on the banknotes who wasn't a former president. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but anyway, that aside, um, my experiences in Africa have been fascinating. Um, so I remained in the financial space, but I was lucky enough to always be curious about technology. As, right. as an individual, I'm curious, you know, because... It was so easy to pay for things in the West. You take it for granted using a debit card. Debit cards were scarce when I first moved to Africa. It was very scarce. Really? Aside from South Africa, debit cards were an unknown, unknown. Doesn't Everything exist. was cash. Cash against value. That's such a beautiful concept. I think that many people have, for, have forgotten about. Now, what happened through my time is that I've seen this enormous shift. We've gone from being cash economies to mobile economies. And okay. the, 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 the biggest proponent of this, or the biggest example, has to be the rise of M-Pesa, or mobile money as it's known. What has happened effectively is that 
finance in these countries hasn't got a legacy. There's no big legacy of card terminals. There's no big legacy of checks. No one knew what a check was in 2009 in Uganda. A check? What's What's a check for? Piece of paper. If you want to buy a house, best turn up with a suitcase full of money. (laughs) Um, So there wasn't that legacy, that um, old technology that was holding people back. So they were free to innovate. So mobile money caught on like wildfire. And what has happened is that they've le- leapt ahead in many ways to deliver financial services entirely through a mobile phone. Now, the first wave of smartphones was still quite expensive. So no one could touch them. So mobile money is, in tr- is driven almost entirely by the SMS. SMS. Yeah. And a lot of transactions take place by USSD, the Unstructured uh, Systemic Device Messaging System. Um, And they have developed an entire economy, an ecosystem around this. M-Pesa has become huge. It it transmits 40% of Kenya's GDP. 40%? 40% of Kenya's GDP. Which is huge, by the way. Right? (laughs) We lend money to each other. On M-Pesa. Um, How does it work? So if I want to lend you some money, right. I can effectively put a block on my balance and M-Pesa will then extend you a balance. Okay, easy. That's very easy. That's peer-to-peer. But now they're moving to the point whereby they're using behavioral analysis. How often do you top up? When do you spend your money? Do you spend it in bars or in shops? Is it late at night, early in the morning? Do you receive a lot of payments from different people? They're using behavioral analysis to credit profile. In a country where fixed addresses with a credit card history doesn't exist, this is now the new frontier for credit profiling because everything happens on your cell phone. Sorry, it's even probably smarter than credit profiling because uh, of what the traditional bank would do. Because what happens is that if you don't have any debit card history or credit card history, it's very you're very difficult to profile. Also, I would imagine that mobile phones these days, or even not even smartphones, they can be tracked with the GPS, right? Exactly. We know when you're paying, who you're paying, how much you're paying, how often you pay them. And in fact, the, the, the data can be analyzed such as that they can predict within the accuracy of one or two percent what your income is purely based on how you operate your cell phone so now the telecoms companies are effectively becoming banks and the banks who thought they had this regulatory protection with central banks and the ability to hold currency and to hold accounts they thought they had the power but no the telecoms companies now have the power and the banks have to play nice. If you think about it, if I do not have a bank account because it was too difficult to go to a branch and prove my address because I don't have an address, I would put my money on my cell phone, right? And my cell phone would become my bank account. What Easy. happens then? My money's with the telecom company and not with the bank. The telecom company can then choose where to put this money. So it changes the money market of a country. So effectively, you're saying that you have in some of uh, these countries, probably in the case of Kenya, which is an early adopter, I guess, you would have the telecom companies probably having a bigger, a bigger, you know, cash and then being a bigger depositor than some of the banks, and also their cost of funding from ALM perspective would be very little, close to zero. 
Exactly, you've hit the nail on the head. The banks now have to play nice with the telecom companies, primarily because the telecom companies have so much liquidity and they have so much power to push rates. A fascinating thing happened to me whilst I was in Nairobi. I went to a bank to make a deposit. The cashier told me, why don't you bother queuing up? Go to your agent, give it to the M-Pesa agent, and then we can, we've got a direct link, M-Pesa to your bank account. You'll never have to come to a branch again. I d- this is revolutionary for me. Um, as simple as it sounds, banking until that point was very difficult because there weren't branches outside the main cities. The branches were always busy and suddenly they now had branches everywhere. Anyone who could sell you airtime effectively became a teller. So easy, so easy to operate your branch network as well. I mean, it's everyone wants to sell something. Exactly. Now, the next phase of this was the $100 smartphone. Game changer. All financial services are now rendered through the smartphone. Because I can pay and receive payment through a smartphone, I can now do a myriad of other things I couldn't do before. I can buy a life insurance policy. I can insure my car. I can effectively uh, have a standing order, which I couldn't because I didn't have a bank account before, to pay my child's school fees. Easy. I now have financial services on my cell phone. The $100 cell phone has created a revolution where we're now seeing all the traditional financial services fall into an app-based ecosystem with a payment API being mobile money. Now, traditional financial services include wealth and investing. In several African countries, I can open an investment account. I can open deposit accounts. I can invest on the stock market in one or two of the countries purely from myself. This might sound simple in the Western no, it's not, context. It's not simple. I think that... Um First, it's not first even in the Western world. In many countries, it's not yet available. It's not as seamless as it seems. Second, um, we uh, here in the Dubai lessons, we recently spoke to another African expert who was mentioning um, what the, the the details of um, some of the players, and then what is the ecosystem behind, and what is the amount of technological evolution or rather innovation, I would say, that has happened so that these services become um, available to everyone who can afford a $100 smartphone and they're essentially in your, in your pocket. This is, fundament- uh, this is fundamentally important because it encourages innovation. And then this is where you move to the, you know, to the digital economy, to the fourth industrial revolution and, and, and etc, etc, etc. And then this is when your traditional banks are probably being challenged. So what's your take on the African banks? I believe that what we call a bank today will not exist in a decade. Primarily because it's so expensive to operate in that traditional model. You don't need that architecture. You can today have a digital bank deployed in the cloud in about a week. In a week. Uh, Yes, you heard that correctly, in a week. My hypothesis for financial services in Africa is that for the longest time you had one billion people and out of that one billion people it was somewhere between five and ten percent had access to financial services five and ten percent so ninety percent were unbanked and they didn't 
they didn't seem valuable customers because it's too expensive because they're also low-income people most of these people but technology 5g hundred dollar smartphone uh, open apis for payments and the app ecosystem which is now very robust based on the fact that anyone can build an app and deploy it in the play store or ios store um, is a game changer so to me the nature of the next decade is going to be the fact that these people who are too expensive to service and not profitable will become enormously profitable for the institutions that get hold of them because it's at a vast scale and it's it is and you're getting them at a point where they're still riding the income curve up right this is a big macro play so these institutions that don't get hold of these opportunities, they will be irrelevant and gone in a decade. I see there are four big forces. 5G is an enormous force. An incredibly young population. In most of Africa, I'm an old man. <laughs> I am in my mid-30s, but the, the median age is in the teens. Median, i.e. half your population is under 18 or under wow. 60. Right? The youth. Population dividend, right? The youth is, is another key thing. Um, the next thing is that there's no legacy. Everything is new and everything that can be imagined can be built. And the fourth thing is that because it's partly to do with the lack of legacy, if you can imagine it and build it and deploy it, which is very simple these days, we're, we're going to see a leap in the type of service offering that will change the face of financial services on that continent and this is why i'm so very bullish to use an old market term i'm incredibly bullish for those who are in the app ecosystem i'm incredibly bullish for those who are in the hardware side strangely because everyone thinks that there's no need for hardware but feel think how you feel when you go to pay you want to your terminal is technically contactless, but you feel the need to touch your, your, your Apple Pay device or Samsung Pay device on something. You know, the merchants need to show you something. I still think that there is room in super cheap, super efficient hardware out there. In Absolutely, yeah, to, to kind of make the transmission of value visible. It's like when you, when you go to a coffee shop and then you go and you buy yourself a coffee, you may be using your touchless credit card, but you go and you make physical contact from the card to the reader. Yeah, value transmission. Answer. Exactly. And I'm incredibly hopeful for this space, and anyone who wants to be in this space should be in those three verticals. Right. Um, I think a very interesting conversation uh, uh, so far. Uh, one thing that I would suggest rather uh, to you is that perhaps you can... Uh, I, I'll actually reference you on the podcast so people can uh, probably reach out to you and then kind of have a chat about what you know because it seems that it's very interesting and it's uh, not only interesting but uh, the last uh, the last two pillars that that you mentioned are actually incredibly um, exciting i i guess for many of our listeners the the fact that as long as you can imagine something you can build it and then the fact that uh, there will be a lot of innovation and i think that uh, knowing how innovation goes it's something that can define future industries, um, not only in Africa, but everywhere else around the world. Right, if we were to sum up our conversation here in the Dubai Lessons, what are the three most important things to, to, to take away? So, 
the lessons are, are fundamental to growth and development. The first lesson is keep your eyes open, maintain a natural curiosity because the world will present you with challenges that may appear to be insurmountable but in those challenges there's vast opportunity so maintain your curiosity the second lesson and this has been fundamental throughout my career is to allow yourself to just follow the dots sometimes having no plan can be a very good plan <laughs> true that can't disagree right and leave leave room for happenstance for chance for serendipity the third thing that i'd say as a fundamental lesson to anybody in any walk of life is if you want to achieve something you cannot do it alone it is the network you surround yourself with it is the different sets of eyes that bring a different visual to your problem or to your opportunity fundamentally if you wish to succeed your success will come from the people you're working with and networking with no, I, uh, i cannot disagree with that as well networking is um, very important and i think a fourth takeaway for uh, for myself um, was the fact that we should never confuse the concept of money the concept of and the concept of value as well as the concept of exchanging of money and value because this is fundamental to the to the financial system thank you everyone for listening uh, dubai lessons i was uh, boris and i was joined by my friend mark thank you very much